Warning, Seriously Strange covers topics that may frighten or disturb you. Listener discretion is advised. Coincidence, it can oftentimes be seen as the idea that existence has an at times morbid sense of humor. If at first you don't succeed. Joseph Egner was a painter in 19th century Austria. He had the opportunity to paint portraits for Austrian leaders and writers alike. At only 18 years old, his darkness had already caught up with him. He made the critical decision to end his own life. Death lingered closely by as Joseph prepared to hang himself. And death would have had him had a mysterious capuchin monk not suddenly appeared and interrupted his attempt. Death would leave empty-handed and Joseph would choose to live. But death does not like to be tempted. Four years later, despite the incredible circumstances when he was 18 years old, Joseph called death once more, as he prepared again to hang himself. And he would have succeeded, had it not been for the arrival of an all too familiar capuchin monk. At this point, a rational person might believe their life is worth something, but the story doesn't end here. Joseph became the commander of the Academic Legion during the 1848 revolutions in Vienna. Apparently painting and trying to kill himself got old after a while. But this ended when he was court-martialed for high treason and sentenced to death. Finally, he'd receive what he'd been after for so long. But before he could be executed, someone stepped in to beg his pardon. You guessed it, the Capuchin Monk. And Joseph was free. He lived till he was 68 years of age, at which point he pulled out his pistol and shot himself in the head. The man who presided over Joseph's funeral? Yeah, the Capuchin Monk. They lived as brothers. There are six million car accidents each year, and that's in the United States alone. Out of those six million, over 40,000 people will die. Some of them members of the same family. As devastating as it is, one pair of brothers from Bermuda were able to cross the line from tragic to seriously strange. Erskine Lawrence Eben was only 17 when he died, the victim of a motor collision. He was riding his moped at the time when he was struck by a taxi and killed. Just the year prior, his brother Neville experienced a very similar accident. A very similar accident. Erskine and Neville were both 17 at the time of their deaths. They were struck on the same road, riding the same moped, nearly one year apart to the day. But the strange doesn't end there. The taxi that killed Neville was the same taxi that killed Erskine. The same driver was driving, and he was even carrying the same passenger. Do you find that unbelievable? You should ask what the taxi driver thinks. The best worst aim. Sometimes revenge is patient, even if the one seeking it is not. In 1883, Henry Zeigland was a man who was dating a troubled woman. After Henry decided to break off their relationship, his girlfriend, devastated beyond all hope, killed herself. The girl's brother was enraged by this and vehemently blamed Henry for his sister's death. He sought revenge. Gathering up his gun, he went to seek out Henry and upon finding him, shot him. Knowing what fate awaited him for murder, the brother kept to family tradition and shot himself in the head. But unbeknownst to him, Henry was alive. Only grazed, the bullet had lodged itself in a tree behind Henry. It would be years later before Henry, for some foolish reason, 
decided to cut down that old tree. However, he experienced great difficulty in doing this. Perhaps Henry should have broken up with the tree, then maybe it would have cut itself. But being a man of little brain and much brawn, he decided to blow the tree up with dynamite. As expected, the dynamite decimated the tree, but with an unexpected and short-lived result. Within the explosion, the old bullet was blasted free and struck Henry in his head, killing him instantly. A Raw Diet Edgar Allan Poe was a man surrounded by a dark and eerie aura, which made him one of the most famous writers of all time. Out of his many works, he only ever completed one novel. Though in keeping with Poe's obsession with death, this book would prove to come very much alive. In the novel, the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket, a whaling ship is capsized in a storm, leaving only four survivors, one of which was named Richard Parker. Richard suggested that the other three survivors draw lots in order to decide who would die in the event that the other men had to eat. Much to his dismay, Richard is the one selected to die and is cannibalized by the three other men. The story is a gruesome situation that no one would ever want to find themselves in, but you'll come to find that some people have all the luck. 46 years after Poe's novel was published, a yacht was sunk out in the ocean due to a gale. Four set sail that day, and luckily, all four survived. But after over two months at sea, the men found themselves in a morbid predicament. The men ran out of food, and they were very, very hungry. Struggling with their decision, they eventually decided to draw lots. The cabin boy was the selected victim, and he was killed by the other survivors, who ate his meat like mad wolves and drank his blood. The cabin boy's name was Richard Parker. Erdington Murders We've all heard the saying that history repeats itself. However, after a while, you might begin to wonder if there's more to it than that. With centuries under its belt, the small suburb of Erdington, England has encountered violence before, but nothing as haunting as the murders of Mary Ashford and Barbara Forrest. Both girls were 20 years old and were slain in the early morning hours of May 27th. Each of their bodies were found partially clothed and showed signs of sexual assault and death by strangulation, and the main suspect in each of their cases bore the same last name, but their deaths took place 157 years apart, and the similarities don't stop there. Mary Ashford was a young woman living in the year 1817, and the evening before her death, she planned to attend the local dance in honor of Whit Monday, a floating holiday mainly celebrated by European Christians. She changed into her new dress at her best friend's house before both girls departed for the dance. Upon their arrival, they had no shortage of admirers, but Mary only had eyes for one man, a local bricklayer named Abraham Thornton. They spent the evening together, departing the dance at midnight and weren't seen again until 4 in the morning when they parted ways. But by 6.30, just a few hours later, Mary was discovered dead in a flooded sandpit. Her admirer, Abraham Thornton, was arrested as the main suspect under suspicion of murder. 157 years later, in 1975, Barbara Forrest's body also lay murdered just 300 yards from where Mary's had been found in 
1817. The day before Barbara's death also fell on Whit Monday, in the evening of the 26th, she too had changed into a dress at her best friend's house for a night of dancing to celebrate the holiday. The last person to see her alive was her boyfriend who walked her to the bus stop at 1 a.m. By sunrise, Barbara took her last breath and her body was discovered days later on June 4th. Not long after, police arrested a man who had worked with Barbara at Pipe Hayes Children's Home, a man named Michael Thornton. Abraham Thornton and Michael Thornton shared no relation other than that they both sat accused of killing a young girl separated by over a century of time. Both Thorntons went to trial and were found not guilty and acquitted of all charges, each jury citing the evidence against them as merely circumstantial. But a police archivist investigating Barbara's case noticed while looking through old files even more seemingly coincidental parallels between Mary and Barbara. They allegedly shared the same birth date and had strikingly similar facial features. And according to family, each girl had prophesied that the days ahead would only bring them suffering. Just a week before her death, Mary Ashford had confided in her best friend's mother that she had bad feelings about the week to come, but that she could not explain why she was overcome with dread. Barbara Forrest, too, had confided in a friend and colleague at work saying, This is going to be my unlucky month. I just know it. Don't ask me why. But the most devastating and chilling similarity of all is that both of the murders remain unsolved. Poker Game In the game of poker, fate often seems to be an unseen player. Robert Fallon, an avid poker player who hailed from Northumberland, England, found himself at the Bella Union Saloon in San Francisco in the midst of a tense poker game. Robert managed to win a pot of $600, but one of the men at the table loudly accused him of cheating. Immediately, the men at the table grew angry, so angry, in fact, that one of them pulled out a gun and shot Robert to death right there. But in the realm of poker, money earned through nefarious methods was considered unlucky, and no one at the table stepped forward to claim Robert's earnings. Instead, they devised a scheme to fuel their greed, pull in an unsuspecting passerby, an amateur, and win the money back fairly. They zeroed in on a young man who agreed to play with the dead man's money, and the game began. But the cards didn't fall where the murderers had hoped. The man, it turns out, wasn't an amateur at all. And by the time the police arrived, he had more than tripled his money, taking his earnings from $600 to $2,200. Authorities, however, demanded the young man hand over the $600 won by Robert Fallon to give to his next of kin. But upon hearing the name of the victim, the young man again shocked everyone by claiming that Robert Fallon was his father and that they hadn't seen each other in seven years. In disbelief, the police demanded proof, and the mysterious stranger pulled out identification that proved he was, in fact, Robert's son. The man left with all of his and his late father's winnings. Titanic Coincidence Sometimes we find that art imitates life, but can it also predict the future? In 1898, author Morgan Robertson published a novella titled Futility, or The Wreck of the Titan. The plot of this story revolved around a palace-like ocean liner described in the book as the largest craft afloat in one of the greatest works of men equal to that of a first-class hotel, with a capacity for 3,000 passengers, but most importantly it was a vessel so grand it was considered unsinkable. This ship was appropriately named Titan. 
Robertson's book goes on to describe every detail about the British luxury vessel. It was built from steel and stretched to a massive length of 800 feet, had three propellers and two masts. Titan was to make a voyage across the Atlantic Ocean, but misfortune would follow the trip. On a cold April night near midnight, the Titan struck an iceberg starboard side, and the vessel was only carrying 24 lifeboats, the minimum amount required by law. The ship sank bow first, capsizing before slipping under the ocean surface, leaving only 13 of 3,000 passengers alive. While the story of Titan was surely a fictional piece, 14 years later the tragedy seemed to jump right out from the pages. In 1912, the RMS Titanic was a source of pride for the British as it, much like Titan from Robertson's novella, was the largest floating ocean liner in the world at the time. But this wasn't the only common factor between the fictional Titan and the real ship, the Titanic. Apart from having almost identical names, both vessels were constructed from steel, were considered the highest class luxury liners, and able to carry up to 3,000 passengers. The Titanic's length only differed from the Titan's by 82 feet, and both were carried swiftly across waters by three propellers and had two masts. And one word associated with each vessel? unsinkable. Unfortunately, the parallels between the ocean liners did not end there. The RMS Titanic was on its maiden voyage across the Atlantic Ocean when it struck an iceberg on its starboard side on April 15th at 11.40pm in the same month and same time as the fictitious Titan. The Titanic only had 20 lifeboats aboard the craft under the minimum required and sank bow first, killing over 1,500 of its panicked passengers and making it one of the deadliest maritime time disasters in history. After the sinking of the Titanic, many labeled Robertson a clairvoyant, which he denied, saying the parallels were only due to his vast knowledge of maritime trends and shipbuilding. The life of story and the story of life. Magazines, if you're anything like me, you only look at them when you absolutely must. Like if your phone is about to die in the dentist's waiting room, a place where you may feel like you're about to die as well. But magazines used to be a major draw for the masses. And one such magazine, beginning in 1883, was Life Magazine. Life Magazine was quite popular, you've likely heard of it. It was independently published for the first 53 years of its existence, but in 1936 it was purchased by Henry Luce, magazine magnate and publisher of the still-famous Time Magazine. Henry took life and made it into the magazine the world came to know it as, famous for its photography. And inside the very first issue, there was a photo of a surgeon holding a newborn baby right after delivery. The headline was cleverly titled, Life Begins. It was officially released to newsstands on November 23, 1936. The newborn baby's name was George Story, and quite a story it would be. Life magazine kept up with George's life and published occasional updates for its readers. As he grew up, pursued a career in journalism, got married, had children, life was there to cover it. It was like George's life and Life magazine were intertwined. However, as decades passed and the year 2000 approached, Life magazine wasn't doing so well anymore. As is the trend today, print media was the old way people got their news. On April 4th, 2000, Life announced it was officially shutting down and would no longer publish any more magazines, and also included a recap of its connection with George Story over the years. With the announcement of the end of Life, also came the end of Story's life. He died only a few days later of heart failure 
at the age of 63. The Eastern World. It is exploding. As everyone should know, on August 6th and 9th, 1945, the United States detonated two atomic bombs over two Japanese cities, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And as a result of these bombings, the death toll crossed into six figures. It was the first and only time nuclear weapons were used in wartime. Obviously, among all those who were lost, many survived each blast, but if you search Japan's records, only one man survived both of them, a man named Tsutomo Yamaguchi. On August 6th, Yamaguchi was in Hiroshima for a business trip. He had been walking down the street in the city when he heard a plane somewhere in the sky. Looking up, he saw it, but he thought little of it. It could have been any other plane, but it wasn't. It was the Enola Gay, carrying the atomic bomb little boy. Before he knew it, everything was bathed in a blinding flash of light, and he was launched to the ground, where he was understandably injured. After getting his wounds treated and the next day arrived, Yamaguchi was ready to go back to his home, sweet home in Nagasaki. Despite his injuries, he insisted on returning to work, still wrapped in bandages. Three days after the blast at Hiroshima, Yamaguchi found himself sitting with his boss, who had sat him down and wanted to hear all about Yamaguchi's experience. But his boss was about to find out firsthand, as a plane dropped Fat Man, the second atomic bomb, and it detonated in a blinding flash, a deafening boom, and a colossal mushroom cloud. Yamaguchi and his boss were both thrown to the floor, and although Yamaguchi's wounds from Hiroshima became infected from the chaos of the blast in Nagasaki, he survived again. Despite his brushes with monumental death, Tsutomo Yamaguchi surprisingly lived a long and fulfilling life before he passed away at the age of 93 from stomach cancer. He lived the remainder of his life as an anti-nuclear weapons activist and held no ill will towards America. Rebel with a warning. Alec Guinness and James Dean are without a doubt two of the most recognizable names in Hollywood thanks to their memorable performances in a handful of films including the first ever Star Wars movie for Guinness and Rebel Without a Cause for Dean. Although both actors have since passed away many years ago, James Dean had passed away tragically young. If only anyone could have predicted that. James Dean passed away on September 30, 1955, after getting into a fatal car accident while racing in his pride and joy a 1955 Porsche 550 Spider. During the September race, a vehicle turned onto the road that James was racing down. Due to how sudden it was, James had no hope of braking or avoiding the car and collided into the side of the vehicle. This sent James's Porsche bouncing across the pavement. As a result, James Dean had broken his neck and sustained a number of other fatal injuries, which all claimed his life. So where does Alec Guinness come into all of this? Well, rewinding a little bit, Alec was looking to get into a crowded restaurant in Hollywood one night, but he was turned away due to how busy it was. James Dean already had a table inside and noticed Alec got turned away and was walking back to his car to find somewhere else to eat. James rushed to the parking lot and invited Alec to have dinner with him at his table. Alec agreed gratefully, but before they went inside, James showed Alec his new car, the Porsche 550 Spider. Alec knew the car was a speed demon and knew James's reputation for fast living, so he looked at James and said, Look, 
I won't join your table unless you want me to, but I must say something. Please do not get into that car, because if you do, and I looked at my watch, and I said, if you get into that car at all, it's now Thursday, whatever the day it was, uh, 10 o'clock at night, and by 10 o'clock at night, next Thursday, you'll be dead. Shockingly, that next Thursday was the race where James Dean lost his life. But this isn't the only bizarre occurrence that happened surrounding James Dean's infamous car. To find out more disturbing events that happened after the tragic race, be sure to watch my episode on Cursed Objects, linked in the description below. The Deadly Double The attack on Pearl Harbor, which transpired on December 7th, 1941, changed the face of the world and history as we know it, and is still remembered somberly all these years later. At the time, tensions were at an all-time high due to World War II, but that wasn't the only thing that got people's blood pumping. On November 22, 1941, before the attack, The New Yorker, a popular magazine, posted a handful of advertisements for a dice game called The Deadly Double. The marketing for said game showed it being enjoyed by players who were hiding in an air raid shelter. Smaller ads for the game also aired, but it wasn't until after the Pearl Harbor attacks that people paid close attention to what numbers appeared on the dice, including one that showed a 12 and 7, which people believe stood for the month December and the day the 7th. Some of the other advertisements were said to show numbers that referred to other aspects of the attack, such as the time it began. Of course, this eerie discovery caused many people to be more than a little weirded out, and it even garnered the attention of the military, obviously. But as it turned out, there wasn't somebody who was pulling strings behind the scenes, hiding clues to the attack in advertisements. It was all just a big coincidence. Or at least, that's the official story. Unlucky Guess Chris Benoit was a Canadian professional wrestler that had a 22-year-long career. He worked for numerous promotions, including the World Wrestling Federation, World Championship Wrestling, Extreme Championship Wrestling, and New Japan Pro Wrestling. No surprise, he was a widely loved wrestler who had many fans on his side. But little did the public know the truly eerie story that would occur in late June of 2007. In a suspected double murder and suicide, local law enforcement officials concluded based on evidence found within his home that Benoit had murdered his wife in their residence on June 22, 2007, had killed his seven-year-old son on June 23rd, and on June 24th had committed suicide, hanging himself on a piece of workout equipment. However, 14 hours before their bodies were found dead by police officers, Benoit's Wikipedia page was updated, stating that he was having difficulties relating to personal health issues stemming from the death of his wife, Nancy. The edit was subsequently undone within the hour by Wikipedia administrators, mainly due to there being no credible source for the information. Eventually, the individual who was responsible for the edit had their IP address found after an investigation was conducted by police. After they were found out, the Wikipedia user apologized for his edits, stating that the whole thing was just a major coincidence, and that he had simply made the assumption all on his own and was shocked at how accurate they turned out to be. 
The horrific events surrounding the murder-suicide gave a solid shove for industries to look into the effects of multiple concussions on the brain, which can lead to chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE, as a result. It was revealed Chris Benoit, who died at age 40, had the brain of an 80-year-old man with severe Alzheimer's. Crosscode Puzzle Leonard Dahl was a man who everybody viewed as just your average guy in the 1940s. He worked a basic job and didn't seem to have a particularly exciting life ahead of him. However, that changed rather quickly one day. Leonard was the headmaster of the Strand School in England, and because of how boring he found his job to be, he would spend a fair amount of time doing crossword puzzles to make the day go by just a little bit faster. Because he enjoyed completing crossword puzzles so much, he actually started to make them for the Telegraph, a popular British newspaper. But nobody ever thought that this simple, harmless activity would end up causing a panic within his own government. In June of 1944, Leonard was at work when a very official-looking man pulled up in a car, at which point Leonard was escorted out of the building by agents from MI5, the United Kingdom's domestic counterintelligence and security agency. Leonard was taken away and was never heard from again, until a few days later. After some days had passed, he returned to work, but refused to tell anybody what had happened. Years later, what happened to Leonard came to light. At the time the MI5 agents had come to escort him away, it was the day before the infamous D-Day the invasion of Normandy, France by Allied forces in what would be the largest seaborne invasion not only of World War II, but in history. When one MI5 officer was trying to take his own mind off of the incredibly tense world around him, he sat down and started to work on one of the crossword puzzles that Leonard had produced for the newspaper. But what was supposed to be a relaxing exercise had the officer going pale with anxiety, as he found words such as Utah, Overlord, Juno, Omaha, Neptune, and Mulberry in the puzzle. Why was the officer so disturbed by this? Well, they were all code words for various parts of the D-Day operation. As it turned out, Leonard Daw wrote his crosswords by giving his students blank layouts, where he then asked them to fill in the words and then finish by writing the clues. While some of the students were outside trying to come up with words, they overheard some soldiers speaking those exact same terms and used them in the crossword puzzle. Bound by Fate it goes without saying that two of the most famous individuals in history are Abraham Lincoln and John Wilkes Booth, the former obviously being known best for serving as the 16th President of the United States, and the latter being notable for assassinating Lincoln at Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. on April 14, 1865. This has been taught in history classes throughout the United States for decades. You probably know a lot of the details relating to Booth's assassination of Lincoln, but I'll bet that many of you have never heard of a genuinely shocking coincidence that relates to the assassination, one they certainly haven't taught you in school. Unlike his notorious brother, Edwin Booth was a huge supporter of the Union during the Civil War, but he also had a more personal connection to President Abraham Lincoln. In late 1864, Lincoln's son, Robert Todd, was traveling on train from New York to Washington, D.C. During a stop in Jersey City, Todd stepped back on the busy train, allowing his 
fellow passengers to exit and pass by the train, making some more room. However, when the train began to move, Lincoln fell onto the tracks and would have, without a doubt, been either seriously injured or possibly crushed to bits if a stranger had not caught him by his collar and pulled him out of harm's way. As he later wrote, Todd immediately said that he recognized the stranger as the famous stage actor Edwin Booth, thanking him for his assistance in saving his life that day. Booth only later learned the identity of the man that he had saved. His friend Adam Bado, a colonel in the Union Army, wrote the actor to congratulate him for saving the president's son, who was by then serving as Bado's fellow officer on General Ulysses S. Grant's staff. Knowing what would happen between Robert Todd's father and Edwin Booth's brother at a later time makes eerie an understatement. Two Damn Deaths the Hoover Dam, a true marvel of human construction in the United States, located in the Black Canyon of the Colorado River, it was built from 1931 to 1936 during the Great Depression. The dam took thousands of workers to construct, and it sadly cost the lives of around 100 people. Two of these unfortunate individuals, however, were a bit different from any of the others. On December 20th, 1921, a crew was surveying locations that would be fitting to break ground for the dam when, before they knew it, they found themselves stuck amidst a huge flash flood. The conditions were so dangerous that they claimed the life of one of the men, John Gregory Tierney. Obviously, since that day, many other individuals have sadly lost their lives while working on the Hoover Dam but one stands out amongst the crowd. 14 years after John Gregory Tierney's passing, a man named Patrick had been hired to work at the Hoover Dam as an electrician's helper. While working one day, Patrick was climbing up a tower to do some repairs when, tragically, he ended up losing his hold and fell from one of the two intake towers on the Arizona side of the Black Canyon. His body plummeted helplessly to the ground below, and he died on impact. John and Patrick were two men among over a hundred that fell victim to the Hoover Dam project in one way or another. But this wasn't exactly a coincidence, as the project was dangerous. The coincidence comes into play when it was revealed that Patrick's full name was Patrick William Tierney, the son of John Gregory Tierney. John had died on December 20th, 1921, while his only son, Patrick, had died on December 20th, 1935, 14 years apart to the day, both sacrificing their lives for the same project. John Tierney was one of the first deaths involved in the building of the Hoover Dam, while his son, Patrick, was the last. Had to get away. Vacation was all they ever wanted, until it happened. Jason and Jenny Cairns Lawrence were a hard-working couple looking for some time to themselves that would serve as a getaway from the trials and tribulations of work, and the two figured that there was no better place that could provide more fun than New York City. So they packed up their things and left. They arrived in New York City on September 11, 2001. They were having a terrific time, enjoying the cool early morning among the bustling city streets before a loud crash was heard overhead in what would be only the beginning of the most devastating attack in U.S. history. 
Fortunately, Jason and Jenny survived, but were understandably shaken up after being in such close proximity to what they had experienced, the atrocity that had claimed so many not so lucky. The couple didn't go on vacation for nearly four more years, probably due to how scarring the last one had been, but on July 7th, 2005, they finally decided that it was time to give a vacation another shot, this time setting their hearts on London, which was already close to their home in Birmingham, England. On that very day, the two were in their nation's capital when four men, who would become known as the 7-7 Bombers, unleashed a coordinated attack that resulted in the death of dozens and injuries of hundreds of people in the London underground. Yet another horrific event, and yet Jason and Jenny again found themselves to be fortunate survivors. Understandably, they were left completely shocked and terrified because of yet another terrorist attack that they witnessed firsthand. Three more years went by before the couple were ready and willing to go on another vacation. So eventually they decided that they wanted to travel to Mumbai for November 26th, where, you guessed it, terrorists struck right near Jason and Jenny yet again, this time in an attack that lasted four days and claimed the lives of over 180 people. Lucky or unlucky, who knows. But if you ever find yourself in the same airport as this couple, I recommend asking where they're going and then getting yourself a ticket in the opposite direction. From beginning to end. Twins. Whether identical or not, many twins out there claim to have a connection to their siblings that transcends a typical family bond, sometimes going as far as to believe there's something supernatural about their relationship. And for two 70-year-old identical twin brothers from northern Finland, fate would make others into believers of this idea as well. In March of 2002, one of the two twins was riding his bicycle in the town of Rahe, located 600 kilometers north of the capital Helsinki. It was a typical ride, much like any other day. Enjoying the fresh air, the man rode his bicycle across the street, when all of a sudden he was slammed into by a large truck that he hadn't noticed. The man tragically didn't survive the impact. Just two hours later, the man's twin was also riding his own bicycle, getting himself moving and enjoying the fresh air, not knowing the fate that had befell his brother just a short time before. That was when the brother approached a road that he too needed to cross. Without much hesitation, he pedaled toward the other side. Unfortunately, the brother didn't see the large truck, much like the one that had killed his twin, rushing towards him, and as a result, he too was struck and thrown, and also died of his injuries. Just two hours apart, two identical twin brothers died after being hit by two separate trucks. What makes this even stranger is that the second brother was killed on the exact same road as the first, only one and a half kilometers away. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow the Seriously Strange podcast so you don't miss what we've got in store for you. Watch the shadows and stay alive out there. Thanks to all of you for your support. The Seriously Strange podcast is made possible due in part to contributions made by our listeners like you. So if you would like to keep the Seriously Strange podcast online and accessible, please consider pressing the link that says support the show in the description of any podcast episode. You can then choose your preferred way to donate and send a contribution our way because we can't do this without our listeners support. 
If you decide to contribute, it's tremendously appreciated, and we thank you so much. We read every single message included with each contribution, so feel free to include your comments or even make a request for a future topic. Thanks for listening. We've got a lot more in store for you. Take care and enjoy your next episode.